The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In one of her very earliest poems, Emily Dickinson offers this invitation to her readers. She says, There is another sky, ever serene and fair, and there is another sunshine, though it be darkness there. Never mind faded forests, Austin, never mind silent fields. Here is a little forest whose leaf is evergreen. Here is a brighter garden where not a frost has been. In its unfading flowers I hear the bright bee hum. Prithee, my brother, into my garden come. And I thought that this would be a good opportunity to come out of hiding and get back to doing regular episodes here and to do so with a handful of poems about the spring. I don't know where all of my listeners are in the world, but uh, I was just noting today in a poem that I have not had to shovel the snow once this year, and this is living in a place where there is snow, uh, regular snow and terrible snow every winter, and that just hasn't happened. And so I think it is time to just... uh, forget about the winter and assume that the spring is closer than we might imagine. And so hang out with me here for the next hour or so, and let's hear a bunch of poems about spring. Now, the first of these comes from E.E. Cummings, who lived from 1894 to 1962. And this is a poem where he desperately wishes that the philosophers and the theologians among us would perhaps leave spring the hell alone. And this is what E.E. Cummings has to say. O sweet spontaneous earth, how often have the doting fingers of prurient philosophers pinched and poked thee? Has the naughty thumb of science prodded thy beauty? How often have religions taken thee upon their scraggy knees, squeezing and buffeting thee, that thou mightest conceive gods? But true, to the incomparable couch of death, thy rhythmic lover, 
thou answerest them only with spring. And we can move straight from that poem to one by an American poet named Richard Eberhardt, who lived from 1904 to 2005. This is a good thing to follow on E.E. E. Cummings. This is a poem he wrote that is called This Fevers Me. And it goes like this. This fevers me, this sun on green, on grass glowing this young spring. The secret hallowing is come, regenerate sudden incarnation, mystery made visible in growth, yet subtly veiled in all, ununderstandable in grass and flowers and in the human heart. This lyric mortal loveliness the earth breathing and the sun. The young lambs sport, none utterless. Rabbits dash beneath the brush. Crocuses have come. Wind flowers tremble against quick April. Violets put on the night's blue. Primroses wear the pale dawn. The gold daffodils have stolen from the sun. New grass leaps up, gorse vellows, starred with day. The willow is a graceful dancer poised. The poplar poises, too. The apple takes the sea foam's light, and the evergreen tree is densely bright. April, April, when will he be gaunt, be old, who is so young? This fevers me, this sun on green, on grass glowing, this young spring. And that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? We can go on from there to, let's see, actually a Welsh poet by the name of Vernon Watkins. He has a wonderful poem in his uh, in the selected poems that uh, New Directions brought out. He has a wonderful poem in there called The Tributary Seasons that follows the whole year through. All I'm going to do here is read the spring part, and perhaps that will prompt some of you out there to just go and find the entire poem. But this is what he has to say about spring. What you have seen, you have not known Look for it now that winter's gone. The winter stars, the silent king, the angelic night, give way to spring. March into May, the lengthening day, with forward light kindles the finches in their play, turning their wings in amorous flight. No star in frost more brightly shines than in white grass the celandines, now sunlight warms and light wind shakes the unopened blooms the jonquil breaks clean from its sheath gold wax and gums hold the buds fast the chestnut comes first into leaf its trance-bound hands pulled from the shell by silken strands breathless and white the sap unseen climbs the stiff stalk and makes all green. All timeless coils break through, sublime. 
the skins and cerements of time. What spikenard makes the dark earth sweet? Life from the hyacinth's winding sheet breathes in the fields and thrushes sing. Earth is our mother, spring is spring. The tree of spring, the selfsame tree. Spring is the green foretelling tree. And that too, what uh, you can't uh, do much to match that. So much of this, these poems about spring, you don't even need to be following quite what they're saying. The language is so lush and beautiful that it carries you along, even if you aren't quite comprehending every image or the, the role of whatever narrative there might be. Another American poet, uh, Kenneth Rexroth, I remember hearing about him ages ago in connection with the Beats, and it was a great surprise, uh, a great wealthy surprise, you might say, to come across his poetry and to see that it uh, stands well enough on its own. He doesn't need to be associated with anybody. This is from a longer poem that he wrote called Toward an Organic Philosophy. And this is a section of that poem that is called Spring Coast Range. And this is what it says. The glow of my campfire is dark red and flameless. The circle of white ash widens around it. I get up and walk off in the moonlight. And each time I look back, the red is deeper and the light smaller. Scorpio rises late with Mars, caught in his claw. The moon has come before them, the light like a choir of children in the young laurel trees. It is April. The shad, the hot-headed fish, climbs the rivers. There is trillium in the damp canyons. The fetid adder's tongue lulls by the waterfall. There was a farm at this campsite once. It is almost gone now. There were sheep here after the farm, and fire long ago burned the redwoods out of the gulch. The Douglas fir off the ridge. Today the soil is stony and incoherent. The small stones lie flat and plate the surface like scales. Twenty years ago, the spreading gully toppled the big oak over onto the house. Now there is nothing left but the foundations hidden in poison oak, and above on the ridge six lonely, ominous fence posts. The redwood beams of the barn make a footbridge over the deep waterless creek bed. The hills are covered with wild oats, dry and white, by midsummer. I walk in the random survivals of the orchard. In a patch of moonlight, a mole shakes his tunnel like an angry vein. Orion walks waist-deep in the fog coming in from the ocean. Leo crouches under the zenith. There are tiny hard fruits 
already on the plum trees. The purity of the apple blossoms is incredible. As the wind dies down, their fragrance clusters around them like thick smoke. All the day they roared with bees. In the moonlight they are silent and immaculate. And that's wonderful to hear after the Eberhardt and after the Vernon Watkins as well, to hear just what seems to be a little bit more loose and obviously not rhyming, but you still, at least I do, I trust this voice completely. I could read page after page after page of what seems to basically be a diary of a campsite and its details. I'm sure that there's an awful lot of work went into it seeming quite as natural as it is, but indeed they are silent and immaculate. Now we come to, this is a fun poem to put in here. I haven't read anything from Edna St. Vincent Millay on this podcast, and it's fun. This is the first one of hers that I will read. She lived from 1892 to 1950, and this is her poem that is just called Spring. And she says, To what purpose, April, do you return again? Beauty is not enough. You can no longer quiet me with the redness of little leaves opening stickily. I know what I know. The sun is hot on my neck as I observe the spikes of the crocus. The smell of the earth is good. It is apparent that there is no death. But what does that signify? Not only underground are the brains of men eaten by maggots. Life in itself is nothing. An empty cup, a flight of uncarpeted stairs. It is not enough that yearly down this hill, April comes like an idiot, babbling and strewing flowers. It is not enough that yearly down this hill, April comes like an idiot, babbling and strewing flowers. We need that corrective too, don't we? We need to catch Edna St. Vincent Millay on a bad day where you can just come around and say, uh, I don't quite get this. Um, another way of saying April is the cruelest month, actually. All of these things that are coming up out of death. There is a sense that uh, at some point, people who are aware of things or who feel things, or perhaps feel things too deeply, uh, find the, the circle of life, you might say, uh, disgusting. And we do need to see uh, an expression of that every now and then. But then, I do think it is worthwhile going back to the other version of it. Uh, just like Vernon Watkins, the American poet Eleanor Wiley, who lived from 1885 to 1928, uh, she also wrote a four-part poem that covers the seasons. This poem is called Wild Peaches. And as with uh, Vernon Watkins, I will only read the part about spring. This is part three of Eleanor Wiley's poem, Wild Peaches, and this is what it has to say about the springtime. When April pours the colors of a shell upon the hills, 
when every little creek is shot with silver from the Chesapeake, in shoals new minted by the ocean swell, when strawberries go begging, and the sleek blue plums lie open on the blackbird's beak, we shall live well, we shall live very well. The months between the cherries and the peaches are brimming cornucopias which spill fruits red and purple, somber bloomed and black. Then down rich fields and frosty river beaches will trample bright persimmons while you kill bronze partridge, speckled quail, and canvas back. That has a nice jot to it as well, telling its own story. I don't know how many of you out there have heard of the American poet by the name of Abby Houston Evans. She lived from 1881 to 1983, and I only uh, came across her a few years ago, and it was basically this poem that stuck in my mind, a huge anthology of American poetry from the 20th century all the big names, all the usual names. And I kept wondering, where is that poem about the old shop in the country? And I couldn't remember who wrote it, and I came across it again. And perhaps this is more of a summer poem, but it strikes me as worthwhile reading right here, right now. This is Abby Houston Evans. This is her poem called The Old yellow shop. This is what it says. In farming country you are sure to find them. Little gray wooden buildings boarded up, astride a stone wall or lost in a thicket, with what shut in? Well, I think if you pried a warped board free and climbed in through a window, you might find much the same thing as I found in the yellow shop on my grandfather's farm. Darkness at first, pencils of steady sunlight alive with dust that slanted in through chinks, and such a smell of cedar you would know before your eyes grew wide enough to see that the place was full of stacks of fragrant shingles. Then tattered paper hanging from the wall crude blue, perhaps, and red, brick red and brown, that chocolate brown the old folks seemed to fancy. That might be all, or might not be, for after I had stood there for a while, held by the quiet, a sense of ended things grew up about me. Someone had lived there once, I think a cobbler, it was a place where men had come and gone, men of my blood whose names I did not know, whose feet had worn the hollow in the threshold that let the light in underneath the door, whose lives had been blown out one after one by the wind of time like candles in a row set up to be extinguished. Yet this shell, the haunt of a dead man, still gave back the sun and stood up to the hail and sleet of winter. I gripped the nearest thing my hand could find, a cleat someone had hammered to the wall 
to help him clamber to the loft above, and looked out through the window toward the woodlot. The shadow of the shop ran dark across the field, which but for that lay in the sun, serene and smiling and inscrutable. The air was sweet. Blackberry and wild aster nodded outside the window in the shade. Perpetual things that, springing year by year, are old by repetition, like the sea. There was a cricket busy in the stubble, and a flutter of wings and bushes around the corner, and in the place the sense of something ended. I nailed it up and left it there behind me. And to this day I never pass the shop, often its corner with its blinded eye, with shingles curling loose and flecks of yellow still clinging to the silver of the gray. But I grow insolent with glorying in lovely life. O oh, dancing candle flame, not yet blown out by the delaying wind. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but that is a poem that will be with me um, forever. And I have no idea how I never heard of Abby Houston Evans and her poem, The Old Yellow Shop, before. And I'm grateful to have the chance to share it with you, uh, as I just did. Now we will go far, far back in time. I didn't want to put the usual ones here. I didn't want to have Wordsworth or Whitman. I had to put Dickinson in the beginning, and there was no helping that. Um, and I didn't want to do any of the other romantics or any of the usual uh, nature poets. And so if we are skipping them, we might as well skip them and go all the way back. And this is a poet by the name of Henry King, a British poet by the name of Henry King who lived from 1592 to 1669. And this is his Contemplation Upon Flowers. And this is perhaps you might say the usual thing. He wants to uh, learn what he can from what spring offers. And he does not want to be terrified of death. But I think he does it in a very beautiful way. Three stanzas and he gets his point across and it is wonderfully done. This is Henry King, A Contemplation Upon Flowers. It says, Brave flowers, that I could gallant it like you, and be as little vain. You come abroad and make a harmless show, and to your beds of earth again. You are not proud, you know your birth, for your embroidered garments are from earth. You do obey your months and times, but I would have it ever spring. My fate would know no winter, never die, nor think of such a thing. Oh, that I could my bed of earth but view, and smile, and look as cheerfully as you. Oh, teach me to see death, as not to fear, but rather to take truce. How often have I seen you at a beer, and there look fresh and spruce. You fragrant flowers, then teach me that my breath 
like yours, may sweeten and perfume my death. And of course, that's, uh, for me anyhow, that is my earliest experience of flowers. Um, it says, how often have I seen you at a beer? That is, uh, at, the, at the grave or at the service of someone who is about to be buried. Uh, that is my earliest uh, recollection of what fresh flowers smelled like. And for a long time, I didn't know what, what that was. Um, and I didn't know what, what it was that smelled that way, so that whenever I did come across it, I would think of funerals, not of flowers or of spring. But there you have it. There is Henry King. And I thought to go here, uh, if we have to have an expected name, we might as well begin with Emily Dickinson, we might as well end with William Shakespeare. And again, I'm not sure when you would say King Lear takes place. Uh, perhaps it's a summer, perhaps it's a summertime kind of play. Um, but when you think of Lear uh, in his uh, in his extremity, having been kicked out and uh, going up upon the heath and getting rained down upon, he's out in the thunderstorm raging. Uh, that to me is uh, springtime. That is the springtime that uh, Eliot is talking about. Uh, April is the cruelest month. Uh, and that is the springtime, I think, too, that Edna St. Vincent Millay is also uh, upset with. Um, if you're going to have rebirth, if you're going to have uh, regeneration, uh, that means that something else is going to be rejected, something else is going to be crushed, something else is going to die, something else, or in this case, someone else is uh, going to have a very hard time getting by indeed. And in this case, it is an old man who is being replaced uh, in his old age by the next generation. And the next generation is not treating him very well, are they? So that in Act 3, Scene 1 of King Lear, uh, the character named Kent asks the expected question, where's the king? And the response comes from a gentleman who says, uh, contending with the fretful elements, bids the wind blow the earth into the sea, or swell the curled waters above the main, that things might change or cease, tears his white hair, which the impetuous blasts with eyeless rage catch in their fury and make nothing of, strives in his little world of man to outscorn the to and fro conflicting wind and rain. This night, wherein the cub-drawn bear would couch, the lion and the belly-pinched wolf keeps their fur dry, unbonneted he runs and bids what will take all. Uh, there is King Lear. He strives in his little world of man to outscorn the to and fro conflicting wind and rain. Uh, even the lion and the bear have enough sense to find some shelter, but Lear is unbonneted and is running out in the rain. So that in the next scene, uh, we hear from King Lear himself, and this is what he says. Blow winds and crack your cheeks, rage 
blow, you cataracts and hurricanoes, spout till you have drenched our steeples, drown the cocks, you sulfurous and thought-executing fires, vaunt couriers of oak-cleaving thunderbolts, singe my white head, and thou all-shaking thunder, strike flat the thick rotundity of the world, crack nature's molds, all Germans spill at once, that make ingrateful man. And his fool, who is beside him here, says, O Nuncle, court holy water in a dry house is better than this rainwater out a door. Good Nuncle in, ask thy daughter's blessing. Here's a night pities neither wise men nor fools. The suggestion being which of these two is the wise man and which is the fool. And Lear replies with this, Rumble thy bellyful, spit fire, spout rain. Nor rain, wind, thunder, fire are my daughters. I tax not you, you elements, with unkindness. I never gave you kingdom, called you children. You owe me no subscription. Then let fall your horrible pleasure. Here I stand, your slave, a poor, infirm, weak, and despised old man. But yet I call your servile ministers, that will with two pernicious daughters join your high-engendered battles against a head so old and white as this. Oh-ho, tis foul. And if anyone says uh, Shakespeare doesn't move you anymore, or that he is too caught behind all of his uh, joy in messing around with what he can do with language, uh, those two bits from King Lear uh, should be a good example to the contrary. Uh, that goes straight to the heart in 2023, as few things do. Um, I bet that most people out there who are still listening have, uh, and who have been listening for a while to this podcast, might have the remark, I don't think that I have ever read so many poems so quickly in any episode ever before. Um, there could be a million reasons for this, since I have been in hiding for the last month and a half or so. Maybe I just don't feel like I have very much to say in between these poems. But since I haven't taken up too much time, like I usually would with, I believe, ten poems already, what I will do is uh, end this episode with an astonishing poem from Ted Hughes, who lived from 1930 to 1998, and this is called Four March Watercolors. And I know of very little, I know of hardly anything like this in the English language. And um, after Lear, it would be hard to end an episode on spring with King Lear. And it seems this might be a better way to do it. This is Four March Watercolors from Ted Hughes, and then we will call it a night. And I thank all of you out there for listening, whoever has waited a month and a half, and will gladly grab this episode as soon as it is posted. Thank you for sticking around and picking up this new one. This is Four March Watercolors. Earth is just unsettling, 
her first faint sense. My shadow, soft-edged on drying pale sand, among baby nettles, where flood water whirled and sowed it. The blue is a daze of bubbly fire, naked, ushering and nursing of electricity with caressings of air. Earth, mud-stained, stands in sparkling beggary. Bergs of old snow drifts, still stubborn in shadows. The river acts fishless. It is fully occupied with its calisthenics, its twistings and self-wrestlings. The pool by the concrete buttress has just repaired its intricate engine, now revs at full bore underground under my foot sole, tries to split the foundations, running in, testing and testing. Spring is over there. Tits exciting the dour oak, Cows soften their calls into the far, crumble-soft calling of ewes. The land hangs, tremulous. It pays full attention to each crow-caw, turning full face to the entering, widening, flame-cord, burrowing havoc of a jet. Wild, stumpy daffodils shiver under the shock wave. Nearly a warmth edging this wind. A skylark, solitary, glittering high out over the buoyant upboil. A spice particle from the tumbled out, humpbacked, bursting bales of river. Spring just hesitates. She can't quite say what she feels yet. She's numb and pale, but she's here and looking at everything. First morning of real convalescence. The river is hard at it, tries and tries to wash and revive a bedraggle of dirty bones, primitive, radical engine of Earth's renewal, a solution of all dead ends, an all-out evacuation to the sea, all deaths of wings and fronds of eyes, nectar, roots, hearts, returning, cancelled to solvency. Back to the sea's big rethink. While the field full of novelty lambs, suns and sprawls mid-morning, high-headed, happy, supposing here is a goodness that will stay forever, a blue tit de-rusts its ratchet. We trees, we tall ones, sunning, somewhat mutilated, inured by one more winter, to this muddy, heedless earth, and to our scaly, provisional bodies, relax, enjoy the fraternity of survival, even a hope of new leaf. The river concentrates its work, its wheels churn, foam at the pool tail blazes tawny, thrashing tight-blown flames, bleeding the valley older, an inch of snow whitened last night, and the world slipped back under. This morning, touch precarious snow fledged all complexities of trees and perfected fields. By noon, the earths absorbed it. A ewe, steep-spined, is lowering herself to the power coils of the river's bulge to replenish her udder.
and a big-thumbed buzzard swirls to a stall over the woodtop opposite, mewing, now settling, heavy with domestic purpose. Clouds lift anchors. The world tries its weight. All these branches are jammed solid with confidences. A market of gossip. A spider has found me. The river epic rehearses itself, embellishes afresh and afresh each detail. Baroque superabundance, earth mouth brimming, but the snow melt is an invisible restraint. If there are salmon under it at all, they are in a coma. They are stones lodged among stones, sealed as fossils under the grained pressure. I look down onto the pour of melted chocolate. They look up at a guttering lamp through a sandstorm boil of silt that scratches their lidless eyes, fumes from their gill petals. They have to toil, trapped face workers, in their holes of position under the mountain of water. Up here, a lightness breathes, a morning sleep lightness a glow on the closed eyelids, or seen through the wet cracks of eyelashes, a crammed and jostly pushing of crow-tended, buzzard-adjusted germination. Now only hour after hour of the sweating, speechless labor of trees, and the long ropes of light hauling the river's cargo, the oldest commerce. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.